A prominent physician educator from Harvard assembles a list of five things for longer life based on the medical literature. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. Today we are joined by Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, author of The Big Five, Five Simple Things You Can Do to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. Dr. Chopra, welcome to the show. Delighted to be on the show. Thank you so much. So what is your background as a physician? So I'm trained in Western medicine. I went to the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, prestigious medical school. And then I came for my postgraduate training to America, did my internship in New Jersey, moved to Boston in 1973, then did my residency and fellowship in gastroenterology and hepatology. I was very privileged to serve as the faculty dean for continuing medical education at Harvard Medical School for 12 years. And my real passion is teaching and mentoring, and in addition to speaking on topics in medicine around the country, around the world, I also speak on leadership. I've written a book called Leadership by Example, The Ten Key Principles of All Great Leaders. And I also speak on happiness and living with purpose. And in fact, that will be my next book. Well, terrific. So when you're putting together this list of kind of what is the thing that the lay person can do to improve their health, you really approached it as a academic Harvard physician, correct? That is correct. And in fact, I include some of these things in the talks I give, even in the most prestigious academic medical centers. So, Dr. Chopra, what was the impetus for writing this book? Were these just things you were doing in your own practice? Yeah, you know, actually, the impetus for writing this book was the fact that patients would be very surprised if I recommended coffee. And not only patients, but in my talks around the country, when I would bring up coffee and show a picture of Voltaire, the French philosopher, and ask how many cups of coffee did he drink every day, and the answer happens to be an astounding 50 to 72 cups of coffee a day. He lived to the ripe old age of 83 years. The physicians in the audience would be astounded and would ask, is coffee really good for you? And that really comes from the hepatology literature? Yeah, it actually started in the hepatology literature. I'm a hepatologist, liver specialist, and so I was very intrigued about 25 years ago when I came across an article that said coffee drinkers have lower levels of liver enzymes, appeared to have some kind of liver protection. And then studies came out and said they had less fibrosis, that if somebody drank two cups of regular coffee a day, they had a 50% reduction in hospitalization and mortality from chronic liver disease, which we think afflicts a billion people in the world, that if they have a risk for primary liver cancer, two cups of regular coffee a day confers a 40% reduction. Primary liver cancer mortality is now the third leading cause of cancer mortality on a worldwide basis. And drinking two cups of regular coffee, 40% reduction. So I got intrigued about coffee and the liver. And then I started to look into its other health benefits, type 2 diabetes, Parkinsonism, cognitive decline, And then an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which sort of gelled it, and I got about 100-plus emails that day. Sanjeev, you have vindicated the article about three years ago saying that coffee drinkers, men and women, have low total and cause-specific mortality. I was fascinated about the part in the book about how coffee found its way to Europe, and it was a banned substance for many years. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, Sure. The the legend of coffee is uh, really fascinating. We call it coffee because it originated in a village in Ethiopia called Kaffa. 
and there was a shepherd by the name of Caldi who took his sheep for pasture, and he noticed that in one particular pasture they were very frisky and animated. They were consuming these red berries. So he made a brew out of it. He really enjoyed it. There was a monastery nearby, and a monk walked by every evening, and he actually scolded him. He said, Caldi, you have partaken of the devil's fruit. So Caldi ignored him. After a while, the monk said, let me try it. And when he tried it, he was able to stay up for his late-night prayers. And then it spread to Mysore, India, to Latin America, to different parts of the world. 700 years ago, a group of well-meaning people petitioned Pope Vincent III and said, this is truly the devil's drink and you need to ban it. And the Pope said, you know, before I ban it, let me taste it. And when he tasted it, instead he baptized it, proclaiming, coffee is so good, the infidels should not have exclusive use of it. And right now, today, there'll be about 2.3 billion cups of coffee consumed every single day, the number one beverage consumed. So if I'm going to be recommending this for my patients, does it matter if it's regular coffee? It matter if it's decaf? Is there any data kind of discerning that? Yeah, that's a great question. It turns out that all the health benefits can be seen with regular as well as decaf coffee, with the exception of liver disease. For some reason... The decrease in liver disease is seen with regular coffee, not with decaf. It's not the caffeine, so tea doesn't confer that benefit. Coca-Cola doesn't confer the benefit. Coffee has thousands of constituents, and amongst those are caviol and cafestol. And in the laboratory, one can induce toxic liver injury in an animal using a chemical. And if you repeat the experiment, and pre-treat the animal with caviol or cafestol, it totally abrogates it. So we understand some of the mechanism. There seems to be a dose-dependent effect. I don't want any of the listeners to take what I'm saying next to heart and say, oh, this is a way not to worry about getting liver disease from alcohol by drinking coffee. But it turns out that we need to drink about a pint of whiskey a day or a liter of wine a day for 20 years to get alcoholic cirrhosis. And for decades, you and I were mystified about how come? How come only 20% after 20 years? Is it alcoholic dehydrogenase? Is it something in their genes? It turns out the answer is coffee. Art Klatsky published a paper looking at 123,000 subjects. And if one drinks that much amount of alcohol, a pint of whiskey a day, but drinks a cup of coffee, regular coffee a day, 20% reduction in alcoholic cirrhosis. Two cups, 40%. Four cups, 80%. It's not a license to drink heavily and then drink coffee. It will protect the liver. But as we all know, it can cause cerebellar degeneration, cardiomyopathy, diabetes. We can lose our job, ruin our marriage, kill people on the road. But what an amazing protective effect and a dose-dependent effect. So that, that really, really amazing. And everyone I talk to about your book is really very excited about the coffee thing. I think the, the brethren of physicians, you know, certainly, certainly coffee runs, runs through our bloodstream pretty thickly. So the second thing you wrote on was exercise. And, and can you kind of dive into some of that data? Yeah. So, you know, we know exercise is the single best drug and that uh, lack of exercise and wrong Nutrition can lead to marked weight gain and obesity. Obesity is linked to 20 different cancers. If people have cancer and are obese, they have a worse 
prognosis, then those with the same cancer and individuals who are not obese. Women with breast cancer who undergo treatment, if they now start to exercise, have lower recurrence of breast cancer. This is absolutely fascinating. We don't really understand the mechanism, but it might have to do with the immune system. We now understand something called telomeres and telomerase. Elizabeth Blackburn got the Nobel Prize in Medicine of Physiology, brilliant scientist from Australia, now living in California, for discovering telomeres and telomerase. And longer telomeres means less cellular aging. And what causes longer telomeres? Exercise, Mediterranean diet, meditation. And then a study about just three weeks ago, coffee. People who drink coffee have longer telomeres. Exercise is the best drug. I think you and I have the challenge of getting our patients to exercise. And what I use in my practice and many of our colleagues do is motivational interviewing. So I certainly talk with my patients about fitness versus fatness. And I think really the studies are starting really to, to bear out that the people who might be heavier but are fit do better than the people who are skinnier and not fit. Oh, that's, that's a great point. Thank you. So I, I talk about that 150 minutes a week, and we talk about steps. Is there any data in all this stuff? Yeah, there is. There's actually data now that if you walk four or five times a week, 25, 30 minutes, that, that has multiple health benefits. For those of us who like feedback, wearing a device where we can track our steps, how many miles we walked, how many yards we walked, how many calories we burnt, that is immensely helpful. The other thing with technology is that I can have an exercise buddy. I'm based in Boston, but I could have an exercise buddy based in Chicago or in San Diego. And by email or by Skype, we are connecting. We are encouraging each other. And if I do 6,000 steps, he or she has done 5,900. The next thing, they're taking the longer way to gate number 35 at Chicago O'Hare Airport to catch a flight so they can notch up more steps. We also thrive on competition. So there's many different ways we can get our patients to exercise. And the motivational interviewing is one of the ways we've been very successful in getting people to either quit smoking or to lose weight or, like you said, get fit. So how about vitamin D? That's the third, third arm of your five. Yeah, so it's very interesting when I talk to a lot of my physician friends or other friends and ask them if they take vitamins, the overwhelming majority are taking a multivitamin. Many, many more of physicians are now taking vitamin D3. Some have gotten a blood level checked as well. And I was recently on a flight to Singapore to teach at the National Health University Sciences Hospital. I was invited to put together a short course, and I had three of my amazing colleagues from Harvard Medical School, including the chair of the Department of Medicine, the tenured professor and chief of the hematology-oncology division, and myself. And then the fourth person was an associate professor and a cardiologist. And this topic came up on that very long nonstop flight to Singapore takes 18 hours and 40 minutes. And I asked my colleagues if they took any vitamins, and two of them, the chair of medicine and the chief of Hemonc, said, oh, yeah, we take vitamin D3. We take 4,000 international units a day. 
they turned to me and said, what do you do? And I said, likewise, I take 4,000 international units a day. I turned to the cardiologist and he said, I don't take any vitamins. I don't take, I don't believe in this stuff. So we discussed all the health benefits. And then I turned to him and I said, do me a favor. When you come back, we'll all be back in six days. Go see your primary care and get a vitamin D3 level checked. And lo and behold, about two and a half weeks later, my pager goes off and it's this brilliant cardiologist. says, Sanjeev, guess what my vitamin D3 level was? So I picked a low number, like six or seven. He says, no, 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 undetectable, zero. So this guy is very bright. He works extremely hard. He's a little dark complexioned. When he goes out into the sun, to the beach, he puts sunblock. We now know that young kids playing soccer in Florida, many of them are turning out to be vitamin D3 deficient. Because our dermatology colleagues, and rightfully so, have scared the heck out of us and said put sunblock. The top dermatologists at the Harvard Medical School teaching affiliated hospitals, when they're seeing a patient who may have had skin cancer and now they're coming back for follow-up, make sure they write a prescription for vitamin D as they tell them to use sunblock. So vitamin D is the only vitamin that I recommend we take unless we're deficient or an individual is on methotrexate or dilantin, they need folic acid. A woman is pregnant right away, early first trimester, she needs to take folic acid to decrease the risk of neural tube defects like spina bifida and encephaly and so on. Well, since reading your book, I now have some gummy vitamin D pills on my desk in my office and I offer them to any of my residents who come in who've been working long hours. How about nuts? Yes, that I was surprised when I started reading the literature and came across all the articles about the benefit of nuts. And it turns out all of the nuts have these miraculous health benefits. So it's not only pine nuts and cashew nuts and almonds and walnuts and pistachios, but the so-called lowly peanut, which is truly not a nut, it's a legume. But there are now two recent articles just looking at people who consume peanuts. And a small amount, 25 pistachios, will confer multiple health benefits, lower the LDL cholesterol. Each pistachio has only four calories. So if you and I have 25 slowly, we will have consumed 100 calories. And that's less than a Coca-Cola or a slice of bread, same as an apple. And then the study in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that people who consume a small amount of nuts on a regular basis, and this is the part I hesitate to tell lay people, but I think it's okay to share. When I read that article carefully, it said people who consume a small amount of nuts every day, even if they don't exercise and are overweight, live longer. That is absolutely mind-boggling. So I actually carry nuts with me. I have them in my golf bag. I have them in my car. When I travel, I just came back from Chicago and Santa Fe giving a number of talks and a couple of keynotes. I carry them with me. And when I'm hungry, and especially before a meal, 30 minutes before a meal, I'll carefully chew a handful of nuts. I actually feel satiated, and I know I'm doing good for my health. 
And your last thing you wrote about was meditation. Can you elaborate on that for us? Right. So meditation, the science is catching up. For hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, people have talked about the subjective experiences where they feel they're much more creative, they feel much more settled, they have a lot of silence, they feel anchored, they feel happier. But now the studies are catching up, and not only does it lower the blood pressure, oxygen consumption, lactate production, e.g. coherence, but in long-term meditators, there are actually functional and anatomical changes in the brain. So the concept of neuroplasticity, which is sort of a relatively new concept, in the sense that we used to say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, we can, even those of us in our 50s, 60s, 70s. We learn meditation. Within four weeks, there are these changes, anatomical changes on functional MRI. They're not as profound as we would see in the Buddhist monks meditating for many hours a day, as Richard Davidson, brilliant neuroscientist in Wisconsin, has studied. So there are anatomical changes, there are functional changes. Elizabeth Blackburn has shown with colleagues that meditators have longer telomere length. They have increased telomerase activity. There's a wonderful book. If somebody's looking for one single source to read a lot of the subjective experiences as well as the wonderful research, it's a book by Norman Rosenthal. He's a psychiatrist. He actually described seasonal affective disorder and has written two wonderful books. One is called The Gift of Adversity, and the second one is Transcendence. And in the latter book, he talks all, all about the health benefits of meditation, anatomical changes, physiological changes, subjective feelings. So, Doctor, for our listeners, there's an easy way to remember your five easy steps. Yeah, I think there's an easy way to remember. I, I tell a lot of friends and colleagues, I say, here's an easy way to remember. On a very nice sunny day, go for a brisk walk to your favorite Java shop. Don't put sunblock. Now you'll have gotten the vitamin D3, the exercise, and the coffee. Don't go nuts remembering this. And before you go, meditate. And there's an ancient saying, you should meditate once a day. And if you don't have time to do that, you should meditate twice a day. Doctor, there's some great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show today. The book is The Big Five, Five Simple Things You Can Do to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. Dr. Sanjeev Chopra. Thank you so much. Delighted to be on your show. To listen to this or more episodes in the series, please visit ReachMD.com.